Legacy means a lot of things to a lot of people. To some, it's lasting integrity. It's building and maintaining a history of greatness. It's making an impact on people and community. For others, it's dependable security and assurance in an uncertain time. To us, it's all of that and more. It's a mindset of brother and sisterhood of hardworking people dedicated to doing the right thing for you and those you care about. Of growing today for a better tomorrow. That's what legacy means at Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group. What does it mean to you? Let's talk legacy. Welcome to Let's Talk Legacy. I'm Gary Michaels, your host, and uh, really excited about today's episode. We have Miss Sue Humphrey as our guest. She's a three-time Olympic coach, has been on the cutting edge of women's athletics for over 50 years of coaching, providing guidance to beginners as young as seven years old, all the way to gold medalists, competing at the highest level on the planet. That's just your love, isn't it? It is. It's my whole life. How did you get started in the track and field space? Well, it, it was kind of by accident, actually. Uh, when I was in freshman year of high school, I took an elective class, and I there was this other uh, female and myself, and we were the only females in the class. So we kind of bonded that way. And she was, at the time, I didn't know it, but she was one of the top sprinters in the United States. And so we didn't have any kind of interscholastic track for girls at that time in the high school. And she was good enough that she went over and trained with the junior college men's team. And that was her training group. And so I guess as we became friends, she said, you know, you want to come to practice with me and, uh, you know, help or time or carry, <laughs> carry equipment or whatever. And I did. And then that was kind of the bug bit. And uh, it's been working ever since. So... As we know, the enacting of Title IX was a huge boom for women's sports. Can you explain to some of our listeners what Title IX was? Well, Title IX was basically an attempt to mandate by law the equality of opportunities for women and high school girls especially uh, and college women in sports, that the men had interscholastic sports that competed in high school. They had college scholarship opportunities and professional leagues. The women did not, so it became mandated by law that women had to have the same opportunities and same funding and programs and everything else. Because when I was in high school, I call them the country club sports, but you know, it was golf, tennis, and badminton. And that was the only, those were the only three sports that I had the opportunity, if I wanted to, to play interscholastically. It's come a long way, definitely. Uh, there's still in, inequalities, but it's a lot better than it was, sure, 50 years ago. You know, during Title IX and even before Title IX, what sort of discrimination did women face? What kind of challenges did you have trying to bring women forward? Well, the uh, lack of opportunity was the main thing. Obviously, funding is always an issue, and there were no scholarships, there were no collegiate programs, or the prestige that goes with having a college and high school program. Right. So you get the gig at Arizona State, and you're you're starting to build a program, and, and you're doing well. And then how do you move to coaching at the Olympic level? Because that's a whole, that's a whole nother deal. I mean, how does someone get called up to the Olympics? We know that athletes have to do by performance and whatnot. 
how is a coach evaluated to coach in the Olympics? Well, it's a similar way of a performance, but it's performance off the track, if you will. When I started, again, being very young, I started coaching at 15. So every year we would go to a, a national convention for the USA track and field. Through that group is how you, and now I got my foot into the national and international scene and work your way through different committees and, again, volunteer to do work. Everything is volunteer. That's what people don't always understand is that, uh, you know, you might be called the head Olympic coach, but what you get is your ticket there and your ticket home and a sweatshirt and a sweatsuit. And so that's it. (laughs) So there's a lot more to it than that, right? (laughs) There's a lot more to it and the stress and the press and everything else, you know. But it's the reward and the prestige and just the honor to represent your country and and to work with this level of athlete. So in the Olympics, what was it like the first time you're at the Olympic Games? In 92, uh, that was the first Olympic Games. We got to walk in the opening ceremonies. You got to go wait for five hours before you could march in and all of that. But in 92, if you uh, remember back, was the first year of the basketball dream team. And so we had the men's basketball team there with Michael Jordan and Larry Bird, all of them, Barkley. And that created a whole new, totally different dynamic. But walking in and being part of that and looking at the crowd and seeing the American flags waving, even though we're in Barcelona, Spain, that's a memory that will be with me always. You know, one of the sessions early on in the program, I it was it was a morning session, so it wasn't real crowded. And so I was just sitting there kind of waiting for different things to happen. And, you know, I looked around and I'm like, you know, this is just like another track meet. But then your eyes go over to the rings and there are the Olympic rings and there's the Olympic flame. It's overwhelming initially, but you've got to address it as just another competition because you've got a job to do the same way the athletes have a job to do. So you work with some of the biggest names in track and field. I mean, you really have women and men. Yes. Including Wilt Chamberlain. I'd love to hear how you got a chance to work with Wilt. But Jackie Joyner-Kersey, Florence Griffith Joyner, the the gold medalist from 1996, uh, Charles Austin. I mean, some of, these are the top athletes in the world in this space. Yeah, but to me, they're just friends. So it's sitting yeah. in hell. Well, I'll start with Charles because he was the one that directly I had been coaching on a personal level, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week since 1990. Having him win, and I kind of backtrack as far as some of the stuff at ASU and uh, situations there with Title IX and so forth, but I was told at ASU that when that job opened, the head women's coach job opened, I applied for it. And granted, I was young, and granted, I was a female. But the athletic director said one reason why I didn't get it is because I had no experience coaching men. And so I was like, okay, well, that's true, you know. And so, but then I quickly asked, well, is the man that you've hired, has he ever coached women? And you can imagine what the answer was, quick, uh, uh, no, (laughs) you know. And I'm like, well, how is that any different? To me, that was a of fire that got lit under me right away. So you asked, you literally asked him that question? Yeah. What was his response? Uh, 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 no, he has no experience coaching women. I'm like, oh, you know, I mean, what am I going to say? This. Yeah, is it's almost like when you said nothing, you were saying a lot, right? 
exactly. <laughs> I mean, he said all he needed to say indirectly and directly. So I realized then that that I had to prove myself not just by being me, but by my job, my work, uh, my you know my professional activities. That it wasn't good enough to just be Sue Humphrey, drag coach applying and have this kind of a resume. I was also going to have to do above and beyond what if my name was Jack Humphrey, you know, as a male applicant. So what happened then was when Charles won the gold medal in 96. So we flashed, it's like 11 years later after the ASU situation. And when he won the gold medal, one of the first things I thought of was I should call the athletic director uh, and say, well, I guess I can coach men because he just won the gold medal in the Olympics. So, uh, but I never got the opportunity to to do that. Ah, uh, Barbara. But I, what did he know? I don't know because I never really saw him again. You know, he had gone his way, I'd gone my way. But I kind of think in the background, he probably heard about it or found out whether he put the two together. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You felt good about it. That's I just... felt, you know, and and it was a motivator for me back in in the uh, mid-70s to say, okay, I've got to prove myself above and beyond, not just by one part of work, but above and beyond, but unlike what the male counterparts had to. So then you ask about Wilt and Jackie and Florence. I had friends and had a community built up, and one of those was Bob Kersey, who ended up being Jackie's husband later on. But when I first met him, he was just another a club coach in the Southern California area. And so he had developed a uh, relationship with Wilt and Wilt had started a club called Wilt's Athletic Club, uh, kind of run out of UCLA. And so when I went over to Southern California, I had gone with one of my athletes, Bobby asked if the other athlete and I could be part of Wilt's Athletic Club. And, you know, of course, yeah, of course. So we became kind of the satellite, the field event group for uh, Wilt's Athletic Club. Wilt would pay uh, some expenses for me to travel. We would train mostly out of Long Beach, not out of UCLA. So that's an hour drive each way. He would come down to Long Beach sometimes and uh, come to our practices and just kind of goof around and pay attention to uh, the athletes that were down in that area too. So it was that way that I developed a, a good relationship with him. I mean, Wilt was a big supporter for women's sports, whether it be, uh, you know, track or he played volleyball there after uh, his basketball was over. And he was just very, very supporting to me and to some of the athletes I worked with. And I'll always be appreciative of that. So you worked with Jackie because you knew her husband. Yes and no. In other words, it didn't hurt that I knew her husband and who was her coach before. But actually, I had been watching or paying attention to Jackie as a high school athlete because I was potentially, when I was at ASU, looking toward recruiting her. And so uh, we were at Colorado Springs at one at the Olympic Training Center. It was her junior summer, I believe. And so I'd been trying to reach her and no luck because at that time, you know, no internet. Uh, everything was by phone or letters and you know that could sit in the drawer of a coach's office forever and so what would happen is we were down in the baggage claim area in Colorado Springs and you know I'm watching the bag tags as they come through one of the bags says Jackie Joyner and I'm like oh okay she's going to be here at this camp 
I'm going to become, get to know her and see, you know, develop a, re- a friendship that way. So that's how I met Jackie when she was still in high school. And so that was our first time of getting together and meeting and working together in the high jump, which is what I would help her in throughout her career, all the way to the very, uh, to her last meet of the Goodwill Games. So how did it turn out that you actually ended up being the head coach of the U.S. Olympics? Right. In 92 in Barcelona, I was the head manager. And so the head manager is the person who is in charge of, and we have like three of us, but you know, it's all the travel, getting them to Barcelona, getting them to training camp, getting them back, making sure they get in the right airport, which it's amazing how some of these adult athletes could not get to the right airport, but, um, you know, making sure they get to the track on time and that type of thing, have a uniform that fits, you know, all of the off-track things that will affect their performance one way or another. And so that was 92. And in 96, I was an assistant coach for the women's team. And then in 04, I was the head coach for the women's team. So a lot of our listeners are in performance-based type roles. They're maybe athletes. They're in business. They're in sales. But what does it take realistically for a man or a woman to be successful in sports? And how does that translate to business? Well, to be successful in sports, the first criteria, which is kind of a non-given, is you have had good parents that gave you good genetics. And so that you've got some physical traits that will allow you to perform at this kind of level. You know, I had the love, the desire uh, to be in the sport, but my parents were more the uh, clerical type and the uh, administrative type, not the athletic type. So I ended up going that route. So, you know, first of all, for athletics, you've got to have the athletic ability. But then I think it's the stick to and the determination to find something you're passionate about, something that you really care about and are willing to devote, you know, time, energy, uh, give up certain things that maybe your friends are doing. But you can't, you know, you can't go to every party on a Friday night if you have a game or a track meet on Saturday morning. It's making choices and whether it's in business or sales, you know, it's how much effort and energy you're willing to put toward the task. And of course, being successful helps you want to do more and more. So, you know, that's a given, I think, just human nature. Again, just working through it and and being determined. Let's talk a little bit more on the leadership side now. When you're a coach, it might be you're coaching one individual person or entire team, but what makes a good coach? What makes a coach have the ability to get more out of their people? Well, I think, first of all, you have to know what you're coaching. You've got to have the background of the, the knowledge of the sport or the event or whatever it might be. And then I think it's you have to have compassion and, and care about the athlete and are willing to donate your time and energy and effort, knowledge, whatever, toward the other athlete or the other person, I should say. You have to be willing as a coach to devote all of your energies toward another person's improvement. And the coach rarely gets, it's kind of a joke, you know, as if the athlete does well, the athlete did it. And if the athlete doesn't do well, the coach must have done something wrong, you know, and they create it. So it's kind of a no-win situation as a general rule. But, uh, you know, the 
the good, sincere athletes that you build a rapport with that, you know, they let you know, or they show you and tell you, or, you know, let you know how to, what a vital part you've been with them. I think it's a matter of looking in talent, obviously being able to diagnose who has potential and who maybe should develop another event area or something like that. Uh, being truthful, being honest. I mean, you know, you can get into all these adjectives about a good leader, you know, trustworthy, loyal, and all of that. Same things that you would ask the athlete to show toward you. So it's it's a matter of developing a good partnership and being willing to, you know, go through thick and thin and not give up on each other. When things aren't going right, it's easy to maybe start looking around or bail or, you know, what's a quick way out of this. And that's not life. And sometimes we have to go through a lot of not so nice things before we get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Sue, what's been your biggest victory? Survival till now, I think. But, uh, you know, it's hard to pick one because I, you know, I can say performance wise, okay, having an athlete win a gold medal is obviously the top of the ladder. But, you know, then personally being named a head Olympic coach is a personal top honor. Uh, for me now, I'm working with uh, high school kids and a, a few post-collegians, but just seeing them improve is a reward for me, you know, is to, to me, judging how good a coach you are is what level was that student when they came to you and what level are they either now or when they left you? I think almost anybody can take an elite level athlete that's already established and not screw them up too much. But it really takes a coach to get a, a young, rough, untrained athlete, a young athlete, and to mold them and train them into somebody who's a better performer. What was the biggest hurdle you've ever had to come overcome in your life? Well, I think, again, being a female in a male's world and putting up with some negative comments and negative actions toward me, being criticized for being too pushy. <laughs> I've been called uh, a few things by some of my male counterparts that basically rely that if I was a male, those would be seen as compliments. But as a female, I'm too pushy and I'm not cooperating. Uh, and yet, you know, on a male side, that's considered good. And so it, it's kind of a mix on that. You know, I think when an athlete doesn't or loses trust in you that I've come across uh, within the last four years or so as an athlete who you have taken and developed and helped along and then they think the grass is greener on the other side which we've all seen for as long as I've been in sports but when that happens to you it does hurt there are two that kind of stick out to me um, one a male athlete one a female athlete Again, it's after they've achieved pretty reasonable success. I don't want to mention names, but I'm still friends with them all today. One has come back and one kind of neutralized, but we did make amends. So I think, you know, I I didn't hold a big, big grudge because they didn't. It was more of an internal pain than them doing something nasty publicly or, you know, uh, creating some drama for me in a public professional way. Yeah. I think then maybe I would not have been quite so uh, welcoming back. 
but uh, I do always remember the prodigal son and uh, that story. And so I kind of joke about my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter coming back <laughs> at times. Well, it's interesting. I think that people are a product of the way they were raised and they're doing the best they can at that moment, usually with the tools that they have and the background they have. And and I think we as human beings, for the most part, we're forgiving people that want to give people a second chance and a third chance. But then sometimes our weakness is we give people too many chances, right? Right. <laughs> and that's the other thing. Am I being a sponge? Am I being just, you know, stupid about this? Right. You're a servant. I can tell you are. Just talking to you today, you know, I don't think you ever did this for the money. I think you did this because you cared about people. I think you did this. You volunteered your time because you wanted to make the sport better. You wanted to pour into a, a particular human being to make them better. So obviously, legacy is important to you. What does legacy mean to you? Legacy, I think, ultimately is helping somebody achieve more than they thought they could achieve within themselves. That seeing something in a person, seeing some good things in a person when maybe they don't see it or other people have told them how bad they are, and yet you say, no, you can work out of this, and being able to help someone, again, achieve better than what they anticipated or what they even thought of as being possible. As a coach, improvement and performance is always there. You know, that's kind of a goal that that we have just on a performance level. But to me, it, the legacy is also what kind of a father has this athlete become? What kind of a mother? What kind of a friend? Uh, you know, helping them in what I call the off the track attributes of life and being a good human being. Uh, maybe when they came, they were a little rough around the edges, a little uh, unpolished, if you will. But through working with them and through them with different experiences and giving them the opportunity to stumble and yet to be there to help pick them up. Uh, you know, I think that's important too, because when they're winning, everybody's around them and being supportive. When things go bad, you look around and you're kind of an orphan at times. And I never want my kids to feel that they've been abandoned. What about leaving a legacy for the sport? I think for the sport, the legacy would be that women have value and women can do the job and women don't have to wait for the men to tell them what to do. Um, a lot of times now, the, a lot of the, most of the men that I work with in USA track and field are, are real good and are like brothers to me. And so, and now that's different than 50 years ago because 50 years ago, it was more of a us versus them. But as time has gone on and uh, I think, you know, again, we've had to earn our trust and reputation through our body of work. And so, you know, certain coaches know, you know, if you need this, go to Sue. If you need this, go to Terry. If you need this, go to Carol. Or, you know, we, we've developed niches as we've worked our way up. And I think that the legacy then for women is that we get the job done. We can multitask. And in many cases, and I, I you know, the men have told me this too, so I'm not just bragging one way or the other, is you know, the way the women's committee and the women's team have organized and done things, the men have copied, you know, the men have felt, oh, well, maybe that is a little better organization and protocol than what we were following. 
So uh, they kind of follow in our footsteps sometimes, and sometimes we follow in theirs. So again, it's it's developed into a lot more of a cohesive group over the years, but there's still the a few of us old veterans that, you know, we remember how it was, and so we don't want to get too, uh, you know, too starry-eyed and forget the past because the past can reappear very quickly, as we've seen with some of the society changes uh, lately, uh, maybe against women, women's rights. So we want to be real careful that things don't slip just because of people being oblivious to it. So I'd like to just ask a couple more quick questions. Many of the principles that we've talked about today, um, you bring out in your book called I Want to Run. Tell us about the book and why you decided to write it. The book is a basic uh, beginner book, if you will. It's a a blueprint for a young athlete, a young parent of a young athlete, or a young coach. It's a beginning book of the history of the sport, a little bit of background with the sport and the Olympics and how that relates to track and field. But then because the running part is more popular than field events, unfortunately, but um, I focus just on the running events from the hundred meters up through the distance, the hurdles, steeplechase, uh, the uh, relays, and gave a brief introduction of those events, explained the event, what's needed, what equipment is needed, gave some training theories and training advice, some sample workouts, and went through each event individually and then tied them together where they would tie with other events. And then the last part of the book is dealing on the -the off-the-track activities that will relate back and affect how you perform. The sleep, the nutrition, uh, academic preparation, because it does you no good to be the fastest kid in the class if you can't read or write and you can't be on the team due to ineligibility. Um, I also put in there a little bit about what the colleges expect and what they're looking for for a high school athlete who's interested in pursuing that next level of college. So it's it's a good cross. It's a beginning book as a crossover for all the, the track events and for getting involved in the sport of track and field. And I thought the title was pretty easy to remember so that uh, they could look it up on Amazon very quickly. Right on. I guess the last question I have for you is what's next for Sue? I'm working with some high school athletes now and a few post-collegiates. I've also gotten into the virtual world a little bit more. Uh, Just finished sponsoring a uh, virtual summit called the Gold Medal Coaches Summit. And uh, it is still available online, but we had a week long of uh, five speakers a day. So 30 speakers from all areas of track and field. And it was some of the elite level coaches and some of the top high school coaches. And we gave different presentations on all different topics relating to track and field. And so um, it wasn't an active clinic of that, you know, uh, being alive at that week. But we've obviously recorded it, and it is available if you want to go back and purchase certain days or purchase uh, parts of it. So how would someone get a hold of Sue? They, they want to ask you a question. They want to get recommendations for good programs. Maybe they want to be coached. Maybe they want to get your book. How would someone reach you? I'm in the process of building a website, so I don't have the website per se. But my email is pretty easy. It's my last name, Humphrey. 
H.J. Humphrey Hijup at gmail.com. Right on. Well, gosh, just really appreciate you taking the time to come on our show. And, and you are leaving a legacy for the sport. It, it really is special what you've done. That's just awesome. So thank you. I appreciate you. it. Thank you for the opportunity to share. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to learn more, visit us at southwesternlegacy.com. Shoot us an email via our easy contact form to find out how you can become an agent or how we can meet your needs for final expense coverage. You can find this and other episodes at letstalklegacypod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Let's Talk Legacy is a presentation of the Southwestern Legacy Insurance Group, a member of Southwestern Family of Companies. Thank you.